about the birth of someone in the royal family. So over and over again, the, the language, the titles, the, uh, the pretenses of the empire are being taken and turned on their heads. And this very act of what we call the triumphal entry is in a sense almost a mockery. It had been prophesied by the prophets of the Old Covenant. But this really made mockery in many ways of the great triumphal procession that Caesar would grant to his generals who had extended the boundaries of the empire. And when they came back, they would, if, if he wanted to honor them, he would have four white stallions drawing a gold chariot and around them would be slaves that they'd taken from the people whom they defeated and carts bearing all kinds of goods and back in the back would be the conquered leaders of, of the kingdom that had been defeated or the tribe that had been taken and they'd be back in the back. And you, if you Remember the old movie Patton. Patton quotes this. Uh, we know it because of the church father Tertullian who tells us in describing one of these triumphal processions that behind that conquering general in his chariot stood a slave holding a gold Etruscan crown over his head and whispering in his ear, in the only Latin that I can remember. Respice poste, hominem momento te, look behind you. Remember, you are but a man. The Bible will take this glorious triumphal picture over and again and turn it on its head. Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a humble little donkey, the foal of a beast of burden. And Paul later will take this picture twice in writing to the Corinthians. Once in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 when he says, I sometimes feel as though God has put us apostles at the back of the procession. He's talking about the triumphal procession. He's put us back in the back where you put those who've been defeated by the mighty empire. And back there we're considered refuse the scum of the earth. And again, in our New Testament lesson from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, or chapter 2, we read more explicitly that in this great triumphal procession, we are the aroma, the aroma of life to life for those who are being saved, but of death to death for those who are perishing. Where are we? We're not up in the chariot. We're back in the back with Paul and the apostles. We're the, the aroma of those who are being taken to be sacrificed. So that's one way that the Bible is always taking the images of power and empire and turning them upside down. Another fruitful way would be just to look at the different perspectives, and I thought of doing that this morning. I mean, you have the perspective of the adoring crowds with great expectation. Is this finally the one who's going to come and 
fulfill prophecy and sit on David's throne. But we know that before the week was out, the shouts turned to crucify, crucify. The adoring crowd had turned to a bloodthirsty mob. Or again, the disciples, we read that they didn't understand, they're confused. You've got expectation here, you've got massive confusion on the part of the disciples because they want this to be Jesus' moment, but he keeps telling them that he's going to his death. You see the consternation of the religious leaders. They look at this and go, nothing we do is working. The whole world has gone after him. And you see, only one there who understood what was going on. People speak often, we too often think, isn't it tragic that he was rejected and despised and crucified? No. (laughs) That's why he came into the world. Without the rejection, without the crucifixion, there is no salvation for the people of God. And so he says, now is the time for me to be glorified glorified, he's going to be tried, beaten, stripped, crucified, hung up before a mocking crowd, and slowly suffocate there on the cross. Now, he was being glorified. And for us to understand what it means not only to remember what he did for us this week, but for us to begin to understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We need to get this. So, I simply want to look at three things in the verses we read, and particularly in Jesus' response to the question that came from what seemed to have been uh, religious tourists from Greece. Uh, They couldn't go in and, and be part of it because Gentiles weren't allowed in. So they'd gone up, they could stand at a distance, they could smell the sacrifices, they could see the crowd. If they'd had iPhones, they'd have been taking pictures and videos and describing, now look at these people. I mean, they're there for the show. And they've heard about this wonder worker, they've even heard the story of Lazarus. He just over there in Bethlehem, just over the other side of the Mount of Olives, raised a man up from the dead they, they want to see something. They want stories to take home. So they go to his disciples and say, we want to meet this Jesus. Can we meet him? That, sir, we would see Jesus. It used to be when I would preach in old churches with the high pulpits off, and you'd go up, and there would be a plaque there uh, that said, sir, we would see Jesus. A good reminder that it's not about the preacher. It's about showing him forth. But I always wondered if they remembered who had said it. It was a bunch of of religious tourists. But Jesus' response was, now the time has come. It is now. I'm going to be glorified now. And then to prepare his disciples for what's coming, he does three things. He paints a picture for them. And from that picture, he derives an absolutely crucial life principle for his people. And then he gives an incredible promise very quickly. The picture. Well, there couldn't be a better time of year to remember his picture. He said, unless a grain 
of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. And you and I are having the truth of that agricultural and gardening parable displayed all around us. I thought I was going to miss a great spring by coming here from East Tennessee, where we also have them. But what a spectacular spring as the forsythia began to come out and the daffodils began to break through from what looked like dead earth. And then you've got these fabulous cherry trees. It was, it's almost like being in Tokyo or, or Kyoto. Uh, the the snow-covered branches of the cherry trees and saucer magnolias, and I think these are sweet gums out here. Just gorgeous. And we love it when it has to do with plants. That, yes, it's got to die in order for there to be life. And all winter, the gardens will look as though there's nothing there while the seeds are down, resting, waiting for the warmth and the rain. And the branches of these beautifully flowering trees look dead. I don't like it, and maybe you don't like it so much when Jesus applies the parable to me. Unless a grain of wheat falls in the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Then the principle, Jesus didn't always do this with his parables, but he wanted to make sure that they didn't miss it. So most unusually, we used to, in, in those little readers, when I was a kid, we'd have the hand with the moral, you know, don't miss this, this is what this story's about. And Jesus is doing that right here. I don't have, I, I, we're at the end of, of my time with you. I want you to understand. He has told them this in a variety of ways over and over again. At Caesarea Philippi, the way he said it was, uh, if, if anyone would come after me, must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Of course, as I've said to you before, as you know, we, we too often misrepresent the taking up of the cross. People talk about bearing their cross. These difficult people in my life, that's my cross to bear. No, it's not what he was talking about. The cross is where you die. When you take up your cross, it means that each day, when you come to those points where you've got all your self-created life, this this appearance that I put out there before people and all the things that I want to do to maintain it, this sense of self, and he says, that has to die because I want you. I want to live through you, and that must die, and that's what he's talking about here when he says so radically, if anyone loves his life, he'll lose it. Well, you say, well, wait a minute. That's totally counterintuitive. The person who loves his life is the one who's going to eat right and exercise and, you know, drive safely and, you know, quit smoking, everything but cigars. Um, <laughs> no, I, I just, is that too? Sorry. Um, I'll get emails. No emails, please. I'm an, old, I'm an old man. But, you know, the person who loves his life is going to live healthy. It's going to stay safe. And... Yet Jesus says, if you love your life, you're going to lose it. If you hate your life in this world, you're going to keep it for eternal life. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean that in this life, we've just got to accept the fact that we're going to be miserable and we have to wait until 
eternity for eternal life? No, that's to misunderstand what the Bible means by eternal life. Jesus said, this is eternal life. Not something in the future. This is eternal life. To know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Once you are in Christ, this earthly life, living for yourself, that's now beginning to fall away. You're putting that to death. Sometimes it rises up, sometimes we stumble, sometimes we look, but no, it means you have a new principle of life at work within you. Your life is no longer your own, but the glorious irony of it is that everything that we looked for in all the wrong places is actually only to be found in Christ. And it's when we die to the old way of trying to get what we wanted, whatever it cost other people, only then do we begin to realize what it was that we were made for. Sometimes those old country songs nail it right, and looking for love in all the wrong places is one of them. That's the human condition. We're looking for love, looking for meaning, looking for things that will give us a sense of self. No. He says, just let that die. That's what he means by just hating that. Why would I go back there? In fact, if you, if you were one who, like some of us, ran hard and far from Christ when you were young, and look back and say, Lord, I don't even want to remember the things that I once thought would bring pleasure and meaning. You hate that. That's what he's talking about when he says, if you don't hate your life, you look back at that life you lived and you go, I hate that. How could I have fallen for that? And why, Lord, do I have moments when once again it rises up and has a certain attraction? I don't want to be attracted to that stuff anymore. I want to hate it. That's what Jesus is talking about. Seeing life through his eyes. Seeing it through the word of God. Seeing it in the power of the spirit. Knowing what lasts. Knowing what is worth living for. And he says, you begin to get that. And that's eternal life. And you have it even now. Not yet in its fullness and all of its glory. But you have it even now. And then the beautiful promise. He says, If you serve me, you will follow me. So you're going to be with me now. You're with the Lord even now. In in our zeal to make sure that nobody thinks that we can save ourselves through our own good works, we often downplay so much of what Jesus and his apostles taught. A lot of us are great at talking about the first half of Paul's letters, but we forget that Paul always at some point went, therefore... Since this is true, this now is what it should look like as you live it out. You've been saved by grace through faith, but as Paul says in Ephesians 2, you've been saved for good works which the Father prepared in advance for you to do. And so Jesus says, if you're mine, if if you are mine, you're going to follow me because that's the proof that you really believe me. If If we don't ever follow him, Really what it means is we don't really believe that his way is best, that his way gives life. If you follow me, then you're in companionship with me. And he says, 
my Father will honor you. It's it's almost impossible to believe that that day is going to come for the people of God when, when we stand before the Father and instead of being seared and destroyed by the light of his glory, we hear him telling us how much he loves us as he heaps honor on us. I think I've told you, my dear friend, I'm done with this. Ken Wendland, Ken would not like my telling you his name because he has started more Asian missions than anyone else. He's known by Christians, in, many Christians in Asia today, the same way that James Hudson Taylor was known. Never puts his name on anything, starts these incredible things, turns them over to Asian nationals, disappears, goes start something else. I was with him one day when he got news about one of the lead missions that he'd begun. If you know the English Language Institute China, which has sent tens of thousands of Christian kids into China to teach English, but to bear witness. That was his. He started it, he built it, turned it over. And they were celebrating, I think, their 25th anniversary. I was with him in Hong Kong, and he got a text saying, "Uh, we had a great celebration last night. You'll be pleased to know that your name never came up once. (laughs) And I said, okay, Ken, you gotta tell me, we know each other well enough. Do you do this just as a strategy to fly under the radar so that you can go wherever you want? Or are you just really that much more sanctified than all the rest of us? And he got really serious. And he said, John, I want glory. I want praise. And I don't want anyone to rob me of it before the only moment when it matters, when I stand before the Lord. Not a bad way to live one's life. And I've never known a more joyful person than Ken. As he hates who he would be apart from grace and loves and embraces what Christ is doing, living through him. He offers that to you today, to you. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've done. He's offering you that now. Why live for nothing? when we can live in the hope of glory. Would you take a moment and respond from the heart to whatever the Lord is saying to you today? If you are trusting in Jesus Christ for your salvation, if you've been baptized, then we invite you to come to this meal. Come not because you're strong, but because you're weak. Come not because you're good, but because you are in need of God's goodness and grace. Come because you love the Lord a little and you long to love him more. Come because he loves you and gave himself for you.
Our Lord Jesus, the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it, gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. After they'd eaten, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. Therefore, we proclaim this mystery of the faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Father, how we thank you for this meal that you have set for us. And we would eat it with joy, unspeakable and full of glory. Through Christ our King. Amen. We'll ask the elders to come forward and if you find it difficult to come forward or would rather remain seated simply raise your hand as the elders come near and uh, they will serve you where you're seated